I am here tonight. It is not Memorex. <laughs> I'll be glad when we get past this transition into fall and things kind of clear up one way or the other. So anyway, people are always prone to say, well, you know, you traveled somewhere. You must have picked this up and brought it back. No. My wife taught, is a substitute teacher. She went to school the next day, and all these little Petri dishes at the elementary school gave it to her. She got sick that night, and I got sick three nights later, so we're just blaming the bad health in the public schools. Anyway, it's good to be here again. I know I was here last week, but it's good to be back. And uh, a couple of announcements. First of all, we're going to have our annual Christmas dinner on uh, <clears throat> Sunday, December the uh, 15th, Sunday, December 15th, our annual Christmas slash Thanksgiving uh, luncheon. We're going to do this in conjunction with the uh, Korean church that meets here. So that's going to give us an opportunity to, to fellowship together. And who knows, there'll be maybe a little different food that comes out of that particular meal. So it will be an, an, an experience. Uh, the um, Let me see, there was something else I was going to say about that. Anyhow, uh, that will be on the 15th. Oh, yes, we have had, I've had a request. I've had these requests before, and things just didn't work out. But I've had a request about having a infant or children's uh, dedication service. And so um, just arbitrarily, so it's not hard and fast, but setting an age limit of about six, if any parents are interested in participating in that, uh, we would do that also. Uh, we have a lot of parents and family and people come on the uh, December, on the uh, Christmas Thanksgiving event. So uh, that would be a good time to do that. So if, uh, if you are interested, your parent, then uh, let me know. We'll talk about that on, uh, also on that, particular, on that particular Sunday. There won't be a men's prayer breakfast in December because it would be the same weekend. And so that just... Uh, minimizes all of the uh, extra work that has to go on. Second thing is we have these trips that DBM sponsors to uh, uh, Greece and also to Israel. Either as a combination trip or one or the other. And I know it seems early for a lot of people. You're thinking about Thanksgiving. You're thinking about Christmas and late April is, well, that's next year sometime. But the airlines don't think that way. The um, uh, travel uh, in Israel is uh, every year it increases, and uh, now it's to the point where, if, where I'm going to plan a trip. I almost have to make reservations two years in advance. So anyhow, the airlines want to have some firm figures. We need to have some firm figures. We need to we we need to have at least 20 on both trips, even if we don't have a full 20 registered by the first of December. If we can uh, double or triple what we have. Uh, it would be good. I've had a lot of people mention this to me, uh, but what counts is how many people actually send in their registration money. And so that's that's important. And we've just, uh, if we don't have that in by the 1st of December, and it's refundable until probably mid to late February. And so if that uh, money is not in, if those registrations are not in by the 1st of December, then we're going to have to seriously, seriously look at whether or not we're going to uh, continue to have those, offer those, those particular trips. And uh, I think that is just about it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. 
Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Uh, Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we are spiritually prepared and focused, that we are walking with the Lord, and that we are oriented to his plan for our lives. So if necessary, we need to confess sin. And if not, we just need to take some time in silent prayer to be spiritually prepared for the uh, our time of study in God's word this evening. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just thankful that we've had another day, another week that we can serve you, that we can uh, come together this evening to focus on your word, to be reminded that you have a plan and a purpose for our life, to be reminded that whatever we may be going through, that you are our hiding place, you are our fortress, you're our rock, you are the one who sustains us, preserves us, protects us, and delivers us, and that no matter what happens, it may not It may be a surprise to us, but it is no surprise to you and that we need to learn to simply just uh, relax and trust you knowing that you, your plan will work itself out and we need to orient to your plan and we need to orient our lives to your righteousness. And we do that as we confess sin and we know that we are cleansed from those sins and forgiven and this uh, orients us more to your righteousness. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to study your word for the insight it gives us, for the encouragement it gives us, and that it reminds us we're to have a real joy, real excitement, enthusiasm, because we have forgiveness of sins. And, Father, for that we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. I want you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we are continuing our study of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we came uh, <clears throat> face to face with David's uh, great sins, his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, his sin to conspire uh, to have her husband killed when it was discovered that she was uh, pregnant, and his attempts to cover that up. And also in the in the course of that, he committed... Uh, probably at least three or four of the last five, uh, or he broke at least three or four of the last five commandments in the Ten Commandments, two of which, the adultery and the murder, were capital crimes. They weren't simply sins in Israel. They were capital offenses. So he, he as we studied when we got into Psalm uh, 51, David went through a period of somewhere between three, four, maybe as long as five months, where before he is confronted by Nathan the prophet with his sin. And during that time, David is not just skipping along thinking he has gotten away with this. He knows that there is uh, soon going to be visible evidence of his uh, criminality. 
and that he could, under the Mosaic law, he was guilty of two capital crimes and that he could be executed, he could be stoned, and everything that he has built could be lost and destroyed. And so we know that during that time that the guilt of his sin, not simply uh, just the guilt, but the guilt feelings, which is in some cases the work uh, of God in convicting us of our sin, but it is also the work of the conscience that God gives us. If our conscience has been formed by the word of God, and that was true in the case of David. And what we saw in our study of Psalm 51, to some degree, was how the sin weighed on David. And we get a further glimpse of that in our study of Psalm uh, Psalm 32. And one of the things that has struck me as I was reading through this is just the tremendous sense of sin, the sinfulness of sin that we see in these psalms. There are several other psalms that are grouped together, and they're called the penitential psalms, which simply means they recognize that the writer of the psalm is repenting or turning back to God uh, away from his sin and confessing sin. But there is a genuine sense of the sinfulness of sin, the fact that it is a willful act of rebellion against God, and how serious that is, how terrible and tragic that is. And we live in a world today that has lost the sense of the sinfulness of sin. Uh, <clears throat> as we look at this psalm, the focus is on the joy of forgiveness. But we don't have, I think, the degree of the joy of forgiveness that we experience when we realize the forgiveness of God is directly related to our understanding of the sinfulness of our sin. We live in a world that is constantly shifts in terms of how it understands sin. And when I say world, I'm really including two different categories. Category number one is just the culture at large in which we live as members of Western civilization. Western civilization has been on a track where they have been trying to get God and the biblical concept of sin out of the picture, out of the consciousness of society for the last 200 years. And they really began to succeed more and more once they got to a point in the 60s where the Bible was taken out of school, prayer was taken out of school, where any kind of uh, religious instruction... Now, I understand that a lot of that religious instruction wasn't biblically, uh, biblically correct, but it did enable people to understand and talk about the fact that there's a God, there's a creator, and it would create curiosity in the minds of kids. I remember that when I was a kid, and I'm sure you do too, if you're... If you, remember back before that time period that there would be conversations with other kids about God and about sin and about uh, is there, what happens when we die. And that was not uncommon among the kids that I grew up with. And I'm not talking about kids I grew up with in, in church. We, we talked about that. There was still a sense of God in the culture. 
And when there was a sense of God that's more overt in the culture, there was also a sense of what sin was. There's a sense of right and wrong, that there were, there were absolutes. But we live in a world that is dominated today by antinomianism. And it is even rare in pulpits to talk about sin. And I want to say some things about that as we get started. But what I want to do is just remind us of the chart that, uh, that we use to talk about the sin nature. That the sin nature really is describing the capacity, the orientation of the human soul corrupted by Adam's original sin to rebel against God. At the very core of the sin nature is an orientation towards self. It is all about me. It is not about God. It is all about doing what I want to do and not about what anybody else wants to do. It is oriented towards rebellion, towards authority. This is the basic orientation of the human soul. This is why uh, the Proverbs tells us that evil is bound up in the heart of a child. And the rod of correction drives it far away. There has to be an external authority establish itself to teach absolutes and to teach right and wrong. Otherwise, children grow up with absolutely no sense of values other than what works for them, other than what seems to be good for them, whatever seems to bring them pleasure. That's okay. And when you have a whole culture like that, then you get to a point in a nation like we're in where you reach a tipping point, and I think we're beyond the tipping point. We have the vast majority of people in this country have rejected authority, and they only accept it if it seems to work for them. And it's not just a biblical authority, but we see that it's a rejection of the Constitution. If we just look at the shenanigans that are going on in Washington, D.C. right now with regard to our president, And this farce of an impeachment trial, what we see is that very few of our leaders that are in the majority party are paying any attention to the one thing they should be focusing on, and that is the law of the land and the Constitution. They are antinomian. In fact, the Speaker of the House uh, yesterday made the comment that the president needs to prove his innocence. That is the opposite. Even though that is not uh, the what's going on isn't in a courtroom yet, we still have the presumption of innocence in this country, and we're to be proven guilty, not having to prove our innocence. That shows that uh, she has no sense of the Constitution, and I could spend hours just going through all the examples of how many people have in the government have sworn to support and defend the Constitution, and probably within their first six months in office, they violated the Constitution probably 50 or 100 times because they don't care. They've rejected authority. They've rejected the authority of God. They've rejected the authority of law unless it works for them. That's why we have so many corruption scandals that are going on right now. And it is not just a problem with the leadership. It's like the period of the judges in the Bible. You ha- you have, we have leaders that reflect the values of our culture. We have a culture that is given over to antinomianism. We have a culture that 
doesn't get shocked at the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah anymore. We have a culture that doesn't get shocked at the sins of the Canaanites anymore because they know people who commit those sins. They see these sins and crimes portrayed for them every morning and afternoon on the news. They hear talked about. And the more we hear these things talked about and see that our friends, our neighbors, family members are living uh, in sin without benefit of marriage, Uh, they're engaged in various forms of immorality, they're engaged in drug addiction, they're engaged in alcoholism, which is a sin, it's not a disease. And when we live in a culture like that, we become desensitized to the immorality that is going on around us. Now, when we look at the sin nature, going back to back, this is our starting point. It's all about us. It goes back to Satan's original sin where he wanted to have authority over God and be the ultimate determiner of what was going to be of reality in the universe. So this creates certain lust patterns. And it produces morality or human good, which is a pseudo-righteousness. It may be better than the guy down the street, but it doesn't, it's not good enough for God. God demands perfect, absolute righteousness. But the sin nature produces a fake righteousness. And then we have the area of weakness, which produces personal sins. These are the sins that are listed in the Bible. They're foundational They are not environmental sins. The Pope apparently came out this last week, and he wants to introduce environmental sins as a new category of sins. Uh, There's all kinds of sins. Arrogance, which he manifested, is the root sin. And so we have all of these different sins going on, and we have trends. And we either trend towards a moral degeneracy. In moral degeneracy, we are shocked. We are absolutely shocked at any form of sin or immorality. And we set up some uh, pseudo standards in a lot of cases. And what we've seen in terms of the legalism in uh, in the U.S., uh, going back to the 19th century, they defined a lot of social sins, and they became quite legalistic about them. And if you want to see a case of legalism today, take a look at what's happening with political correctness. That is nothing more than self-righteousness run amok based on a Marxist or socialist ideology. And it, it rejects any kind of opinion that is not their own, and so anything that is not uh, conducive to their opinion is labeled as hate speech. And this is exactly what took place in, in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union in Russia and in China in uh, the precursor to setting up a communist communist government. It may not be the moral degeneracy that you think of in terms of the legalism of certain Christian denominations. It's a different form of moral degeneracy, but it's a moral degeneracy because they have a different set standard for morality. Uh, you talk to a lot of millennials, and it's immoral to... Uh, you know, to use plastic, or it's immoral to use uh, an engine that runs on uh, carbon fuels. These things to them are the great sins. Well, those are not the great sins. Uh, There are uh, more fundamental sins, such as the arrogance that undergirds your moral degeneracy. On the other hand, we have the trend towards licentiousness, 
lasciviousness, and antinomianism. And this leads to what most people think of as degeneracy, immoral degeneracy. But not only do you and I have areas in our souls where sometimes we trend toward immoral degeneracy and permissiveness. That's really what that is. Well, we're just going to wink at that sin. We're not going to make an issue out of that because, well, we do that too, and it makes us comfortable, so it's not that serious. And But that's just a form of, of permissiveness and uh, accepting immorality. On the other hand, that we have areas where we are little legalistic. And when somebody violates that standard, we get all self-righteous and huffy, and we get all upset about it. Well, cultures manifest those same trends. And if you look at our nation, we had a nation that was energized by a works religion that came out of the Second Great Awakening in the early 19th century. Now, there were a few good men and a few good Bible teachers that came out of the Second Great Awakening, but especially as it was manifested on the frontier and as it was manifested in the north under the influence of Charles Grandison Finney, it was pure works righteousness and legalism in the worst case. And it produced a sense of uh, wanting to socially improve things. Finney which if you listen to some Christian radio, you'll hear people talk about Charles Finney like he was some great evangelist. Finney denied total depravity. It's always interesting to talk through your categories of systematic theology when you listen to somebody. Ought to do that with Kanye West if we had enough content yet. But um, uh, you, you listen to Finney, and he didn't believe in total depravity. He didn't believe in original sin. Now, if man is not born totally depraved, then that means he's basically good. And if he's basically good, then his problem isn't sin. It's something that's influencing his will to do bad, to do bad things, not sinful things. We have to be careful with the terms we use. And so if man is basically good, then man is improvable on his own, and he's perfectible. Now, if individuals are perfectible, then an aggregate of individuals are perfectible. Now, an aggregate of individuals could be a city, a town, or a country, or it can be a whole civilization. And see, that's where that led to is the idea that we can perfect our society. And so there was an identification of a number of social sins, not that these were not, I'm not saying that these were good things, but the way it's couched made them uh, the, the big boogeyman. And if we could just clean that up, then we would have a perfect culture. We would have a perfect society. And so if we could get rid of, of, um, uh, of slavery, if we could get, get uh, women equal with men, if we could get, um, uh, you know, get rid of child labor, and a number of other things, get rid of alcohol, the great evil of all society. And as those things were improved, it didn't change the society because the problem isn't that we're, we have these things in society. The problem is we're sinners. We're corrupt. And no matter how we control these things, we're never going to be able to perfect society because at the core is this rancid, malignant, 
corrupt evil that is in each and every one of us. The heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And when we deny that and we say, no, 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 man is basically good, then this is what lays the groundwork for these uh, horrible philosophies such as Nazism, socialism, communism, all of these things has its roots in these uh, anti-Christian ideologies that came out of Western Europe in the mid to late 19th century. And uh, yet they have these same trends of life, uh, either towards immoral degeneracy or, 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 or moral degeneracy. And so in the Christian church, you had, on the one hand, you had this legalism. Christian church, I use the term uh, very broadly. And there was a lot of legalism in Baptist churches and fundamentalist churches and Roman Catholic churches. And, <clears throat> and so the problem for those who were more biblical scholars is that they had to teach grace. And so you had a rise of a huge movement within evangelicalism to a large degree among dispensationalists, but also among some Calvinists, emphasizing grace and de-emphasizing and teaching against legalism because legalism was the big enemy. And it was a cultural enemy within the general pagan culture of the U.S. And it was also uh, a, an enemy within the church. But what happened by the time we get to the, the post-World War II period, and you're still having to do with, deal with a lot of legalism. We still have a certain amount of legalism today to deal with, but it's not like it was back then. I remember how shocked and surprised I was. I'd never heard of this before. Uh, I was uh, talking with a young guy who just started at Dallas Seminary, and I was asking him some questions about where he came from and his background. And he'd been a youth pastor at a church in, in Mississippi, an independent Baptist church. And he said the legalism just got to him. He said when he took the youth group on a, on a, a ski trip, See, this was a church where women always had to wear dresses. That's part of their legalistic package. Women always had to wear dresses, and they had to wear, you know, mid-calf length to ankle length dresses. And so when they took the high school kids on a ski trip, well, the, the high school girls could not wear bib overalls. So they had to wear a dress over their bib overalls. Now, just let that sink in a little bit. This is in 1988. Okay, this is legalism. Now, I know Roger over here. Roger went to East Texas Baptist University, and he had his hands full of legalism. We've got some other people around here who went to Bob Jones and some other places, and they, they saw legalism right up close and personal. And so it was necessary, especially among grace teachers, to focus on grace and to minimize, as it were, this, this wrong emphasis on sin. And I remember hearing some seminary professors and some pastors say, if you're not preaching against sin every Sunday morning, then, then you're part of the problem. But it was a wrong focus on, on, on sin. It was a legalistic focus. But the culture has shifted. Since the 60s, we've become more and more antinomian as a culture. The enemy out there today as a culture and within the church is not legalism. 
you look at 90% of, of uh, churches in evangelical Bible churches in America, the problem with the people are facing in the pew is they've come out of an immoral culture and, and their norms and standards aren't real solid. They're, they've been influenced by a relativistic culture and a relativistic morality. Every one of us has. We can't avoid that because that's the water out of which we came. And so it's only the word of God that begins to gradually shift us and to change us. And so today we need to be teaching more about biblically what sin is, not in a legalistic sense, but we need to have a heightened sense of sin. And as I'm reading through Psalm 32, I realize that personally and also in my experience with believers, when we realize the forgiveness of God in our lives. Now, this isn't going to happen every time we confess sin, every time we deal with something, but do we have the kind of release and joy and excitement that David expresses in Psalm 32? And if we don't, it's because we really don't have a biblical sense of the sinfulness of sin in our own lives and the, the, the danger and the destructiveness that personal sin brings into our own lives. We've been taught grace, and that's great, and that's true, but that doesn't minimize the fact that when we sin, it has consequences, and it has consequences in our own life, in our own spiritual life. It has consequences as it touches others in our relationships, and it has consequences in our nation. We just can't be permissive in the way we deal with the absolutes of Scripture. That doesn't mean we do it in a harsh, self-righteous way. See, this is the problem is you tend to swing from all the way over here to where you're being permissive and you're letting it all slide and everything's good to over here where you're just playing whack-a-mole with everybody's sins. And that's not right either. We're not here to start judging everybody, but we have to recognize that sin is sin, and it is a each sin, whether it's some little white sin, whether it's just gossip, this is an act of rebellion against God, every single one. Now, Christ paid the penalty for those sins, and for that we are grateful. But we've lost a sense of why this is so terrible. And we've got a whole culture out there that when we talk to these, talk to millennials, we talk to younger people, and we're even trying to get close to explaining the gospel to them. First of all, they don't understand what the word sin means. They think we're being judgmental. So we have to start very basic, as I've been saying, and explain what these concepts mean. But we have to really be focused on who God is. The more we understand the righteousness the holiness, the justice of God, the more we come to grips with the sinfulness of sin. Because sin is an act of rebellion against God who is the ruler of the universe, our creator, the one who loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who has given us so much and that every time we engage in sin, it's just a slap in the face. And yet again and again and again, God forgives us. He doesn't just forgive us seven times. That's the big lesson for Peter when he asked Jesus, well, how long should I forgive them? Seven times? He thought that was being really generous. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, which is basically an idiom for you just continue forgiving them every time they do it. 
That's called grace. It doesn't mean you let them get away with it. Americans you know, can't understand forgiveness doesn't mean that they get away with it. When the prodigal son returned to the father, and the father forgave him and welcomed him with open arms, he didn't get his inheritance restored because he had wasted it. See, there were consequences for his disobedience and rebellion. That, was, that inheritance was gone. But he's still the son. He still is welcomed and loved by the father. <clears throat> but there are consequences uh, to that sin. So anyway, that is just background, just some things I wanted to go over uh, <clears throat> as an introduction to this. And before we get into Psalm 32, I want to look at, at Isaiah chapter 5 very quickly. Isaiah chapter 5 describes <clears throat> the antinomianism of Israel in the 8th century B.C. Antinomianism is nothing new. Postmodernism and moral relativism is nothing new. Rebellion against God, rejecting God, and turning your back on God has a great history. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It didn't just start in this generation. It didn't start 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. But <clears throat> this is what we see uh, going on uh, <clears throat> exactly in Israel. And when you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 5, there are a series of woe statements. Um, and, and chapter 5 starts in, in um, I believe that's 5, 8. Woe to those who join house to house. And then again in verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. In other words, they wake up in the morning and their their initial thought is, what can I do just to bring pleasure into my life today and to just go have a good time? Irresponsibility. I'm just going to go get drunk. I'm going to go do drugs. I'm just going to party all day. And so there's consequences, and this is what God brings out in verse 13. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. This is a warning of what will happen uh, into the future. And then in verse verse 16, we read, But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, but God who is holy shall be set apart, shall be distinguished in his uniqueness in righteousness. And then in verse 18, we have another woe statement. Verse 20, 21, 22, twice in 22, we have more of these uh, woe statements. But if we look at verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This ought to be plastered as the mantra of many of the politicians and many of the cultural leaders and the entertainers and the celebrities of our culture. This is what they are doing. They are calling evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You and I look in something, we say that's good, and they look at it and they say that's evil. We look at something, we say that's constitutional. They look at it and they say it's not constitutional. Amos says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? We live in a culture today where at the, at the lowest presuppositional level, we are at an antagonistic war with, the, with others in the culture. We can't agree on the most fundamental things because uh, of this rebellion 
against God. And that's what was happening in Israel. That's why here's Isaiah. Isaiah had a tremendous ministry. We think of Isaiah as being wonderful. He preached the truth. Isaiah ended up being sawn in two by his uh, cousin Manasseh, who became the king of Israel. That's what happens sometimes to uh, faithful preachers. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. You could substitute any of the other pleasures that are going on in our culture, doing drugs, whatever it might be, They, whether it's entertainment, whether it's drugs, whether it is sexual perversion, <clears throat> Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe bribe, and take away justice from the righteous man. Why is that? That is explained in verse 24. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And this is the core problem. And the only solution is to, to proclaim the gospel. That doesn't mean they're going to listen. They didn't listen to Jeremiah. They didn't listen to Isaiah. They didn't listen to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, But that doesn't minimize our responsibility. We are to be uh, testimonies, and we can be a testimony of great joy when we come to understand the grace of God and forgiveness. So just by way of quick review, uh, what we saw in our study in 2 Samuel 12, was David, and David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, and David responded. He confessed his sin. Nathan, as a prophet from God, said, you are forgiven. He announced that forgiveness. It's a summary statement. And then uh, <clears throat> we got into Psalm 51, and we saw that what Psalm 51 was was something that David wrote as a hymn to be sung later in temple worship to remind people of what takes place when we have sinned, the fact that we are uh, we have sinned against God, that we have true guilt, and it may be accompanied by guilt feelings. Once we confess sin, guilt feelings become a sin. But when we commit certain sins, we just feel terrible about it. And over time, we may be more and more terrible about it, and we have to deal with it by confessing sin. And then we have the promise of God uh, that we are forgiven and that we are cleansed from sin. So we saw how David cried out to God for forgiveness in Psalm 51, 1 through 6. He prayed to God for forgiveness of sin in 51, 7 through 12. And he then expressed his vow to teach and to praise God when God forgave him in Psalm 51, 13 to 19. Now, in Psalm 32, we have a psalm that is attributed to David. And traditionally, this psalm is seen as part two to Psalm 51. And in Psalm 32, 1 through 11, we see David praise God for the joy of forgiveness. But it's more than simply a praise for forgiveness. It is a thanksgiving psalm in a large part. It is thanksgiving to God for forgiveness, but it also brings in a another element that's <clears throat> often not in a thanksgiving psalm, and that is a teaching element. It is designed to teach other believers that we are to confess our sin. We're not to wait too long. 
We are to keep close accounts with God. We are to confess our sins so that we too can avoid divine discipline and that we can experience the joy of the forgiveness of sin. So I want to say three things uh, by way of introduction to Psalm 32. First of all, it begins with the statement, a psalm of David, a contemplation, or in the Hebrew, it's a maskeel. We'll look at that in just a minute. This ascribes the psalm to David. It attributes its authorship to David. Uh, and because the psalm speaks of a time of refusing to acknowledge sin, it has often been believed. In fact, this is part of both Jewish tradition. I checked a couple of my Jewish commentaries on uh, on the psalms today, and they see this as well as to be connected, even though it doesn't specifically say it. They view this as being connected to Psalm 51 and a realization of David's forgiveness after his sin of adultery with, with Bathsheba. So this is more than likely, but there's no indisputable evidence that this is the sequel to Psalm, uh, Psalm 51. Certainly there were other sins in David's life. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't perfect, perfect. And he committed many other sins, and there were many other times in his life when he could have written uh, this uh, uh, praise psalm thanking God for uh, forgiveness of sin. But it fits very well with the context of the forgiveness that is realized uh, after Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as I pointed out, he never realizes forgiveness. It's a prayer for forgiveness and a prayer that when he is forgiven, he is going to teach others. That's what this psalm does. It teaches others. It tells others about the importance of confessing sin and uh, realizing the joy of forgiveness. Second thing is that Psalm 32 is, as I pointed out a minute ago, it's primarily a thanksgiving psalm. Now, thanksgiving is coming out, and um, you ought to look through the, some of the psalms. Usually the most of the Thanksgiving psalms come towards the end of the, of the Psalter. But you look at the Thanksgiving psalms, and these give you an idea of how you can pray a prayer of thanksgiving, focusing on who God is and what he has uh, done for us. What distinguishes it from the usual Thanksgiving psalm is that there is a confession of sin in verse 5, and there's also this section that he wants to teach and instruct and educate his readers on the importance of confession of sin, the danger of not confessing sin, and the joy of forgiveness. And then the third thing by way of introduction is that the message of this psalm contrasts the sorrow, the guilt, the depression and the divine discipline that comes from not confessing sin with the joy and the blessing of realized uh, realized forgiveness. Now, if we look at the structure of this psalm, the first five verses <clears throat> talk about the blessing of confession and forgiveness. In verse, verses 1 through 5, Psalm 32, 1 through 5, the blessing of confession and forgiveness. We see the focus on the blessing of forgiveness in verses 1 and 2, and then the, the discipline of not confessing the negatives in verses 3 and 4. And then the confession of sin brings forgiveness in Psalm 32, 5, which functions as a nice summary of that opening uh, introduction. 
Then in the second section, believers are encouraged to confess, to confess sin, for God will protect and preserve them. This is a tremendous section focusing us on God as our hiding place. Some of you have read Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, or perhaps you saw the play that the AD players put on here recently, which was uh, very good. Uh, this is where that title came from. It was a promise that she had learned as a child, and she recognized that God uh, was indeed her hiding place. Verse 7 says, you are my hiding place. He is the one who preserves us. The next clause, he surrounds us with songs of deliverance. So uh, these two verses, the verse 6 talks about the fact that believers should seek forgiveness while God can be found, and they will not be overwhelmed by disastrous discipline. So you confess sin. Now, sometimes God is still going to discipline us, but if we do not sin in a, confess sin in a timely manner, then we may encounter a tremendous amount of divine discipline as God is seeking to bring us back to himself. And then verse 7 focuses on God as the protector and the preserver of his people. And then the third division, verses 8 to 11, believers are instructed to not be obstinate or arrogant in not confessing sin. And that's in verses 8 to 11. I'm telling you, I am surprised how many people in this world think, well, this idea that we need to confess sin to continue in fellowship, I just can't find that in the Bible. Well, they're teaching their people to stay in carnality through their entire lives, and that's just a horrible, horrible thing. Um, believers are instructed not to be obstinate or arrogant in not confessing sin. And there's four verses there. First of all, God instructs the believer on how they should live. You'll see these slides again before we're done. Uh, God instructs the believer on how they should live in verse 8. When that verse begins, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. It may be David who is the I, but David is speaking under divine inspiration and he is providing the instruction for God. So God is the ultimate reference point there. God instructs the believer on how they should live. In verse 9, the believer should not arrogantly or obstinately refuse to confess sin. And there God compares the obstinate or stubborn believer to a horse or a mule and that uh, they have no understanding. And if, they, uh, if they're going to be like a horse or a mule, then he's going to bring divine discipline that is represented metaphorically by a bit and a bridle in order to bring them under control and back into order. And then uh, the third verse in this section, verse 10, those who do not trust the Lord are warned that they will experience sorrow And those who do trust the Lord will be surrounded by God's blessing. And then in verse 11, there's a final verse that is a a statement of joy where believers should rejoice in God's forgiveness. And that's what really struck me as I studied this. How many times do we uh, think about, well, I am just so thankful that God has forgiven me for my sin, and we have real joy uh, in our mental attitude because we've been forgiven from sin. And if we don't have a biblical view of sin, then we're not going to realize how joyful we should be for our forgiveness. Psalm 103.12, for a couple of important other verses. 
Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What a tremendous verse, that when we confess sin, God removes it. He doesn't forget about it because God's omniscient, so he can't forget anything. But anthropopathically, he does forget about it. He's not going to hold it against us. That's what... uh, the passage talks about in verse 2 when it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not uh, reckon or impute his iniquity. He's removed that transgression from us. In verse uh, Isaiah forty-three twenty-five, I, even I, God says, am he who blots out. That means to scrape it off. It's uh, like an animal skin. Something's been written on it and you have to erase it so you have to get out the scraper, and just scrape it off so there's no evidence of what was there before. I, even I, am he who scrapes off your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What tremendous promises. As rebellious as we can be, God will forgive us and wipe the slate clean. Okay, getting started in the first section, the blessing of confession and forgiveness. And we see the blessing of confession in these first two verses. So it begins with the statement, it's a Psalm of David, a contemplation. And that's in the Hebrew text, that's all part of the first verse. It just reads right into, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, that is expanded in verse 2, to blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is quoted and applied by Paul in Romans 5.13. So this first, first verse just talks about the fact that David wrote the psalm. When we look at the first book of psalms, there's five books of psalms. Uh, the first book is comprised of Psalm 1 through 41, 37 of those 41 psalms have a Davidic attribution. It specifically says a psalm of David. But Psalm 2 is identified in the New Testament as also having been written by David. So it's very possible that all of them were written by David. But at least 38 of the 41 we know for sure were written uh, by David. It is called a contemplation. That's kind of a guess. The Hebrew word is maskil. We really don't know exactly what that described. It was a type of psalm. It was, uh, could be a wisdom psalm. It may be talking about it being a didactic psalm, that it was designed to teach. It's translated as a contemplation, but those are just guesses. The word maskil shows up in 12 of the 150 psalms. So what we see here is that there are the three big words that we studied in Psalm 51 show up again for sin. These three words give us the parameters of what sin is. The first word is the word transgression, the Hebrew word peshah, which emphasizes that this is an act of rebellion against God. It transgresses the norms and standards of God. It transgresses Uh, The commands of God, it is an act of willful disobedience to what God has said, and that shows the evil of this act. The second word for sin is the more general word for sin. This is chatat, 
And this means to simply miss a goal or a way or to, it's translated as sin with the, the theological implication, but it also is used with an everyday sense. And I think, as I've said before, that it's important when we're talking to somebody with no Bible background whatsoever that we really def- careful with our terms and define what they are to help people understand what sin is and that sin is an act against the character and the standards of God. And that is the ground. So we have to understand then what the standards of God, what his essence is, go through the essence that God is is righteous, and as the creator, uh, he establishes the standards. He sets the rules. And when we uh, make a mistake, we violate any of the rules, then we have, uh, it's an act of rebellion, it's an act of sin, we've missed the mark. And then the third word shows up in the second verse, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And this is the Hebrew word avon, which means to go astray, to go off course, uh, to go out of bounds. So these three words, iniquity, to go out of bounds, hatat, to miss the mark, pesha, to have a willful act of rebellion, these give us an understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Now the other two important words here are the words that are uh, translated as forgiven and covered. The word for forgiven is this word in the lower left corner. It is nasah, and it means to lift or take something away. That's what forgiveness is. In the New Testament, it has to do with the canceling of a debt. That's what the New Testament word afiemi has to do with. It's the same kind of idea. Something is just removed. It's erased. It's no longer taken, uh, taken into account. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. See, the forgiveness from God isn't so that we can get away with it. It is so that we will learn to fear and respect God and to recognize his boundaries and his norms and standards. The second word translated covered, whose sin is covered, is this Hebrew word kasah, which emphasize the fact that it is covered over. It is also the sense here it is uh, no longer an issue that the person has been uh, made made right uh, with God. But the verse begins with the statement, uh, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. The next verse also begins with the word blessed, and this is the in the Hebrew, this is the word Ashrei, which sometimes is translated happy. So you look at some translations and it talks about the fact that this means uh, to be happy, and that's not quite right. It more or less describes the sense of joy, the sense of relief. God forgave me. I'm just, uh, the burden's gone. I remember when I was a kid, one of the, wasn't always, not every chorus is biblically correct. Bible chorus we sang was rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. Every burden of my heart rolled away. Sin is a burden on our soul. And that's rolled away when we are forgiven at the cross and when we are forgiven when we confess sin. 
and we lose a sense of that. So um, we are blessed. We have this sense of joy and happiness, not in a giddy sense, but in the sense of relief that we're not going to be held accountable for that sin. Verse 2, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now, this word impute is an interesting word. It really comes out of an accounting background. It is a word that means to add things up and come to a conclusion. In fact, the modern Hebrew word that is built on this, so it's chashav, so michshav, you see, see the, the three consonants of the chet, the sheen, and the bait have an maim, an input at the beginning. That makes the verb a noun. So michshav, if chashav means to calculate, anybody want to guess what michshav is? That's the modern Hebrew word for a computer. So it's just computing. It's adding things together, adding things up. So uh, the Lord does not impute iniquity. He is not going to credit it to your account. He is not going to hold it against you. So this is the same verb that is used in Genesis 15:6 when we're told that Abraham believed God and God imputed or credited it to his account as righteousness. The foundation for understanding the imputation of righteousness which is the basis for our justification. When we believe in Jesus, we have nothing to uh, bring to God, nothing that gives us any credit before God, nothing that he can count as being valuable. And so what he does is he accounts to our, or gives to our account, Jesus' perfect righteousness so that he can declare us righteous, not because our morality has been made better, not because we've been changed, but because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. And so by being given the righteousness of Christ, he can declare us uh, to be justified. And then the next line says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the word spirit here is in parallel to the word man. So even though this is the word spirit, the word in Hebrew is ruach, even though this is spirit, this isn't talking about the human spirit. Don't try to make some kind of issue out of that. This is one of those cases where ruach is not used in a, in a technical sense. It's used just to refer to the immaterial part of man. Uh, many times I teach this. This is one of the problems that we've had in the past is te teachers and theologians trying to make certain words technical so they always mean the same thing. Well, in some cases, nefesh and ruach are used as parallels, as synonyms. Uh, and so words are that way. They have a certain fluidity. And in this sense, it's parallel to man, and so it's not talking about his human spirit as opposed to his soul. It's just talking about his immaterial uh, nature, that which makes him who he is. So blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit, that is, uh, to his uh, immaterial nature, that there is no, uh, no deceit, there's no guile. Uh, the, why is there no guile? because it's been removed by confession of sin. There's been a cleansing, and so it's no longer no longer there. So that's the blessing of forgiveness in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see what happens when we don't confess, that there are consequences when we wait. And then we begin to, to recognize, well, maybe we'll be found out. 
Maybe God's beginning to discipline me. Maybe I'm going to uh, lose certain things that are of value to me. Maybe God is really going to uh, lower the boom and I'm going to go through a time of deserved suffering. And this is what we see happen with David. He says in verse 3, when I kept silent, in other words, when I didn't confess my sin, when I didn't come clean with God, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. It not only affected him spiritually so that he's weighed down, but that had an impact on his physical health, his energy level, his strength. He hurt. He had... Uh, if we he lived today, maybe he would have ulcers. Maybe he would have some other problems as a result of the fact that he is going through this increased load of guilt. And in verse 4, he says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. So he recognizes that in some way God is convicting him of his sin and each day gets harder and harder to live. He no longer, as he says in in Psalm 51, he no longer experiences the joy of his salvation. His walk with the Lord is completely destroyed and disrupted. And he says, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. It's as if I have no life. Everything's dried up. There's no joy anywhere. Life is completely miserable. And then he concludes this in verse 5 as he talks about how confession brought him forgiveness. First word he says is, I acknowledged my sin to you. Now, this is different from the word confess in Psalm 51. It sounds the same, but it's a different root. And here it just simply means to make known. I told you about this. I caused you to know. Hiphil stem is the causative stem, and it has that sense of causing something to take place, causing God to be known, which is a parallel to confession. I made you aware of my sin. Not that God didn't already know about it, but he said, it's basically I told you what I did. It doesn't say I begged forgiveness. He doesn't say I pleaded with you to forgive me. He doesn't say, I made a bargain with you that I would never do it again. He said, I acknowledged my sin. I admitted my sin to you. That's what happened before Nathan. He acknowledged his sin to Nathan, and Nathan said, the Lord has forgiven you. David writes, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. He hid it for a while, but now he's coming clean. He's being open with the Lord. And he relates it this way. He said, I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, I want you to notice here that he uses all three of those words for sin again. He uses abon for the word for iniquity, that he went astray. He uses transgression, pasha, that he uh, acted in willful rebellion against God, and he called it a sin, which is to miss the mark or to uh, commit an act of sin. And so he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not uh, hidden. Now, um, and the result is that God forgave the sin. This is the same word that was used Back in verse 1, and you forgave, not saw, you lifted it away, you took away my guilt, you took away my punishment. Now, you may still feel guilty at times, but that's your problem. 
God has removed the guilt. And so when we feel guilty, what we're doing is we're compounding the sin again. We're bringing it back up and we say, oh, God, you didn't really forgive me because I don't feel forgiven. Well, God never asked you, well, do you feel forgiven? Because God doesn't care about how you feel about your sin. What God cares about is how he, as the righteous God, feels about your sin. And when you confess it, he says he's removed it as far as the east is from the west and he's blotted it out, and he's not going to remember it anymore. And that's why you have to learn and claim that promise. So he forgives, it's over and done with, and we are to move on, forgetting those things that are past and pressing on to the high calling of Christ. Then in verse 6 and 7, we get to the second division in the psalm. I'm going to wrap it up tonight, so we may be here a couple of more minutes. The believers are encouraged there to confess sin, because God will protect and preserve them. In verse 6, believers seek forgiveness while God can be found because God may seem to walk away from us. He approaches us initially so that we can be forgive so that we can confess sin, but if we don't confess sin, God may begin to discipline us and the opportunities are going to become further and further away, more and more difficult because we get mired in more and more sin and more and more carnality. Uh, Psalm 32, 6, David says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. I'm just going to stop there. In a time when you may be found. In Isaiah 55, 6, we have a similar passage where Isaiah is challenging and confronting the rebellious Israelites and with their sin. And he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. He's giving you the opportunity now to turn back to him. But at some point, God's going to uh, pull back that offer. And then you're going to go through some real discipline. So while you have a chance, you need to Go ahead and confess your sin so that you can get moving in your spiritual life. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And then he finishes out that verse. Well, first of all, when he talks about the godly, this is the uh, Hebrew word hasid. You've heard of Hasidic Jews. Uh, that, That comes from the same root. It's the root for chesed those who are faithful and loyal to God. It's a term for for believers. For this one, everyone who is godly, that's a term that refers to believers, not just those who are obedient believers. For this cause, everyone who is God, godly, that is a believer, shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. This is indicating what you should be doing. And then he says, surely in a flood of great waters, here's a metaphor of a flood. In, in a flood of great waters, when you may come under tremendous adversity, all of a sudden you've committed some sin and now it's going to just overwhelm you with one problem after another coming in like a flood. They shall not come near him. They won't destroy you. Now, David was going to experience something like this with all the divine discipline that would come to him because of his sin, but they would not overwhelm him because he confessed his sin, he's forgiven. He is now walking with the Lord who gives him the strength to deal with all of the discipline, all of the problems, all of the heartache that came his way as he had to face 
a uh, son and a daughter where the son committed incest, where another son killed him, where that son who killed him led a rebellion against him. All of these things, his family went through a complete uh, breakdown. A modern man would call it dysfunctional. God calls it sin. It's the result of sin and rebellion against God. So we're told here that for this cause, that is the cause of forgiveness, everyone should pray to you to realize that forgiveness and the joy of forgiveness and that in a time when, you, when it's timely, when you can be found, and in that time you will be protected no matter what the disasters are that may come your way. Why? Because of who God is. Notice each line, the first three lines, you, you, you. You are my hiding place. This is a word that simply means a place to, of concealment a place to hide, a place to hide away from the storms of life. You are my hiding place. Second, you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall watch over me. God will keep us. That's a word for guarding and protecting us. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. God is going to protect us. He is the one who will uh, surround us, surround with the songs of deliverance. Songs of deliverance is what you would you would bring to the temple after you had been delivered. So it's a figure of speech. Uh, We would say, you shall surround me with deliverance. And then once we're delivered, we go and we sing hymns of deliverance in the temple. So it's a figure of speech of the result for the cause. The result is songs of deliverance. The cause is uh, deliverance. Then we come to the conclusion of the psalm. This is the area of instruction. We're instructed, don't be obstinate, don't be stubborn. Confess your sin, keep short accounts. Go to the Lord in prayer and, um, and confess those sins, admit, acknowledge it to the Lord. Don't do it in a way where you've got your fingers crossed, as it were, behind your mental back, thinking you're, you're going to, well, I'm going to enjoy it again tomorrow. Uh, that's sort of like you're in fellowship and you're out of fellowship. That's just sort of making fun of God in the whole process. Uh, we somewhat facetiously joke about those who prebound using the word rebound as a uh, term for bouncing back in the Christian life. You know, if um, uh, if that term had come along today, I think we'd be using the term uh, reboot because that's what happens when you're, the computer of your spiritual life starts getting clogged up. You have to reboot it, and it gets clogged up with sin. So rebooting is is the sort of the modern equivalent of rebound, but we used to some people would joke about prebound, just confess your sin ahead of time and and then go ahead, but that's just uh, treating God lightly in a, and sin in a licentious manner. So in uh, verse eight, God instructs the believer on how we should live. He says, "I will instruct you." Three verbs: I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will guide you. This this pretty much summarizes it. God is the one who's going to lead us in life. The first word is a Hebrew word that means I will give you understanding. God gives us understanding through his word. If you want to listen to God give you understanding, I loved what Albert said Sunday morning. Then pick up your Bible and read it out loud. That was great. 
I will instruct you. I will teach you. God's not going to do it apart from his word. God is going to do it through his word, in and through your word, and you need to uh, listen to his word. Listen to his word being taught and read it every single day. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I often is an anthropomorphism for God's omniscience. I will, he knows who we are. He watches over us and he will guide us. He will give us counsel. It comes through his word, not apart from his word. Uh, so many Christians get caught up in the idea that what they have to do is somehow get a special word from God. God gave you a special word. It's in the 66 books of the Bible. And then he said, that's enough. It's sufficient. Now, in, in the next verse, in verse 9, there's a warning that the believer should not be arrogant or obstinate and refuse to confess sin. He said, don't be like a horse or a mule. If you've ever worked with horses or mules, then you know that they can have a mind of their own. And the way to train them is to put a a bit and bridle on them. And sometimes you have to use uh, certain types of bits and bridles that are a little more uh, painful to get their attention so that they will uh, do what you want them to do. When I was in college, I worked in high school, I worked some as a wrangler at Camp Penile and learned a few things about horses, not a whole lot, but you'd see that every horse had a different personality and some were more uh, willing to listen, willing to obey than, than others were. And so what God is using here is this metaphor that if you're stubborn about confessing sin, then he's going to have to bring discipline into your life in order to train you to be obedient. And so he says, don't be like the horse or the, or the mule, which have no understanding. They must be harnessed with bit and bridle or else they won't come near you. See, we need to come near to God and not do it as a result of him putting a bit and bridle on us and bringing us under harsh discipline. Third verse in this closing section, verse 10, talks about those who do not trust in God will experience sorrow. There's a contrast here. On the one hand, those who don't trust in God will experience sorrow. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. The wicked is the unbeliever who doesn't recognize sin at all. The contrast is he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. So the wicked, and in see in the Psalms, this is confusing for all of us, but wicked is contrasted with the with the just or with the godly, and you become just because you have the possession of righteousness. And so the wicked doesn't have righteousness. So the contrast here is to the unbeliever who will eventually have many sorrows. Might not look like it right now, but eventually when he's spending eternity in the lake of fire burning and turning and roasting and toasting, then he is going to have many, many sorrows. But he who trusts in Yahweh, chesed, God's faithful, loyal love shall surround him. Same word that's used back a few verses when it says, you shall surround me with songs of discipline. And then the last verse 
is to enjoin us, to challenge us, to rejoice in God's forgiveness. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. Because God has forgiven you. Wipe the slate clean. God is not going to impute that sin to you, so rejoice. Be glad in Yahweh. Not just be glad, not just rejoice in and of itself, not just go off and be happy, but be glad, rejoice in Yahweh, in God's grace and his goodness to you, you righteous. What makes you righteous? The possession of God's righteousness. As with Abraham, God imputed it to him as righteousness when he believed him. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, this is a different word. And who are the upright in heart? Those who have been forgiven. Those who have been cleansed of sin. And so here we see the contrast between the, the, the darkness that, that we found in Psalm 51 is David is worried. He's unsure of his forgiveness. He's uncertain of what will happen. He's pleading to God for forgiveness. And now he's experienced the joy of God's forgiveness. And we see that the burden is lifted from his soul and that he has excitement he has joy. He rejoices in God's forgiveness, even though he knows that this is going to, the sin is going to come with a penalty. See, he procrastinated. He committed a sin with, with Bathsheba. He could have confessed it and done the right thing at that point, but no, he compounds it with more sin. The more he put off, the more sins compounded with it, and the more he dug a hole uh, for himself until God had to really discipline him. But now he realizes that forgiveness. So even though he has to go through the, the difficult times of his, uh, of his discipline, he can rejoice and have joy in the Lord because God is going to surround him with deliverance. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your word. We're thankful that you have provided us with such insight into your grace, into forgiveness, into what it means to have the our sins blotted out, that you will separate them from us as far as the east is from the west so that you will not remember them anymore and we need to forget them, uh, leaving these things behind and press on to the high calling of Jesus Christ. Not weighed down by guilt and past failures, but focusing on future successes and continued walking with you. Pray that we would be encouraged by God the Holy Spirit with this scripture we've studied tonight. In Christ's name, amen.